Grant, it's always a joy to have us to have you with us um, on these lovely Sunday mornings. And I really do hope you guys had an amazing Thanksgiving, whether you were home or stayed in Corvallis or went with um, friends or family. Uh, I know for us, it's always a great time to get to really be thankful for the blessings of family. Um, I also love this time of year uh, because it's, yes, or as a Friday, you could start listening to Christmas music, right? I know some of you guys probably started before, and I won't judge you too harshly for that. Um, but it's a, great, it's a great time of year. And what I love about this time of year, not only with the Christmas music, is because ultimately what Christmas represents. Um, Christmas represents the coming of Jesus, Jesus incarnate. Jesus came from heaven to earth in the form of a baby. Um, and so that's what we call, we call Advent, which is these four weeks leading up to Christmas. And it's truly a celebration of what Jesus is coming to do. Um, Advent is simply the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. And we know that Christmas is much more than just Advent. It's much more than just a notable person because it's the very king of the universe coming to dwell with man. And so each year we spend the four weeks leading up to Christmas focusing directly on the coming of Jesus. Um, and, and what I love specifically about this year and what we're doing for Advent, our focus, is we're going to be in Revelation 21 and 22. I um, mean, the beauty of, of this Advent is in a sense, we, we know the first Advent, the, the coming of Jesus as he comes as a baby, as he comes to Bethlehem. But really, these next four weeks, we get to look at, in a sense, the second Advent, the coming of Jesus, the coming of God once again, when he comes to restore earth, to make a new heavens and a new earth. And so really the next two weeks, we'll be slammed in Revelation 21 and 22, focusing on this coming of Jesus to earth when we finally are united with God forever. And so if you guys will turn to Revelation uh, 21, we are going to be in verses uh, 1 through 8 this morning. And so this is John writing, and he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the idolaters, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, and all liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. This is the second death. For the last year and a half, 
My wife and I have had the privilege, some might argue with the word privilege, but we've had the privilege of living in a fraternity. Um, me and my wife, we've been house parents um, at one of, one of the OSU fraternities, uh, and it's, in my opinion, been a true joy uh, to get to live life with 70-some guys, and so in a sense, I'm a father of 70. Um, I'm doing quite well for myself, uh, yet they've never given me anything for Father's Day, so I don't know what the deal is. <laughs> Um, but with, with living in fraternity, as you guys can probably expect, we've had some unique experiences, um, some experiences that I've absolutely loved and some experiences that I could do without. Um, I mean, fraternities, you can have all the different uh, preconceived notions about them. There's a lot of good and there's some tough aspects as well. Um, but we've ultimately had a blast. But there's one moment in particular uh, that I absolutely love uh, to tell the story of. And even though I wasn't directly involved in it, uh, my wife was the one to experience this. Um, every year during fall term, they have um, a bunch of freshmen join their house. And so they have a bunch of events throughout fall term uh, to get the freshmen more involved in the house. And one of these events they call air bands. Um, and as you can expect, they put this big stage out um, in the front lawn of their house and in groups of five to ten or so, uh, these guys will choose a song or two, mesh them together, and then they go out on stage in front of hundreds of people, hundreds of other guys from fraternities and girls from sororities, and perform uh, their, their dance. Uh, typically, it starts with a fair amount of clothes on and ends with not that much. Uh, but it's this awesome experience for the guys to just get to have a fun time together, enjoying kind of the, the joys of the fraternity life. Um, I, I wanted to go to this event, but I had a meeting, so I was, I was absent that night. And so my wife was expecting me to come home from my meeting. And so Anna, my lovely wife, you know, just sitting on the couch watching TV by herself, um, and she just hears the door open, and she's like, okay, so this must be, you know, my husband coming home. Um, lo and behold, uh, one of the freshmen from the house, uh, he walks in, rocking just boxers and a bow tie, super classy, and just, just walks in the house looks at Anna, realizes he's not supposed to be here, walks to our other door, opens it, and walks back into the fraternity. And, and it was at this moment when Anna's telling me the story where, you know, you just realize, wow, this is new. Like, everything is going to be different now that we live in this house. The experiences that we are used to are going to look a lot different now being here. When in your life have you said to yourself, wow, this is new. Everything's going to be different. And I'm not talking about just, you know, you get the newest iPhone or you get a new car or a new computer, but truly life events that, that alter your perspective, that alter kind of where you're headed, your trajectory. For some of you guys, maybe it's, you know, you're married. And so it was that, that actual marriage process. Or like Trevor and Sarah, that just got engaged. It's just the process leading to marriage where you're like, dude, everything is going to be different once I'm engaged. And then once I get married, I realize it's my whole world is flipped upside down. Or for some of you, maybe it's you get pregnant and it's the first birth of your child. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, I'm a dad or I'm a mom. Everything that I know is now going to be different because I have this little human that I'm watching over now, that I'm caring for. Or maybe for some of you, it's the full recovery from a long and devastating illness, an illness that has crippled you for much of your life, and through whether it be cancer or some other sickness, you, you find healing, and all of a sudden you're like, wow, 
life is going to be so different. Or maybe for others, it's, it's the coming to school for the first time and you're leaving your parents' home. You're going to live with someone new or someone new is coming to live with you. And it's that everything is going to be different. This is so new. You see, all these images, minus the fraternity story, um, are present in today's text as God reveals the newness of life that he's ultimately calling us into. We're going to see the wedding as, as we talk about a bride adorned for her husband. We're going to see a new and permanent guest being God who comes to dwell with us. We're going to ultimately see the great recovery of no longer will there be death, no longer will there be crying or mourning or pain. And lastly, we're going to see a final new birth as we will be with God and we will be his sons, and his daughters. We will be his heir. Today we're going to be exploring the beautiful truth that God is coming to dwell and make all things new. He's coming to dwell and make all things new. And we're going to look at this in two different sections. The first being verses 1 through 4, which is looking at the dwelling of God. And then verses 5 through 8, as we really look at what does this newness of God mean? What does it pertain to? <clears throat> so to begin, looking at the dwelling of God, uh, we're going to break this up into the where, where is God dwelling, who is he dwelling with, and then ultimately the result of God dwelling with us. If we look back at verse 1, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. It's important to realize and note that when John uses the language of, of new, new heaven and new earth, um, it's, not, it's not a new where we think brand new, completely different, but he's actually using a word that in Greek, the best way we could kind of describe it is renewed. So we're looking at a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. He's restoring all things to what they once were. So in a sense, he's saying this, this new world that we are going to experience, it's going to be like the present one in the sense that it's full of beauty and it's full of power and delight and glory. Everything that we see in this world that we're like, oh my gosh, that points to God, the beauty of a sunset, the awesomeness of standing before Crater Lake or something like that and just being in awe of the magnitude of beauty, that's still going to be present but unlike this world, it's going to be absent of everything that causes this world's pain, that causes this, these people death and tears and agony. In Romans, uh, Paul, Paul writes kind of prior to this experience, he talks about the earth and what the earth currently is going through. He says, for in, in Romans 8, he says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. You see, God's coming to restore that aspect. That this earth as we know it is in pain and groaning and hurting. And God's coming to restore that. 
Yet he says that not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For whose hope for what he has sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Ultimately, John is showing the fulfillment of Romans 8, that this groaning, this pain that the earth feels, this groaning and this pain that we feel is going to come to an end. You see, we wait patiently in hope. Yet Revelation 21 shows us that there's a day when that groaning stops. There's a day when that patience no longer needs to be patience. That hope is actually seen fulfilled in a new heaven and a new earth. And John goes on to say that there's, there's going to be no longer any sea, which for us, I'm sure we're like, okay, I don't understand uh, why, why that's significant. I mean, you go to the Oregon coast, and you're like, I don't want to get in it because it's freezing cold, but it's gorgeous. Uh, yet f- for these people, the sea was not something that was beautiful. The sea was something that, that was dangerous, that was hostile towards them. It was something that they wanted to avoid. Most of the time, we look at stories in the gospel, and a lot of times the sea came with storms. The sea came with danger. You see, the sea is the dark force of chaos which threatens God's plan and threatens God's people. The sea carries a negative and fearful connotation with, with the Jews, the ones that are reading uh, this, this text. Or even look earlier in Revelation, Revelation 13, uh, they talk about the monster coming out of the sea. And so when John says the sea is no more, he's saying that all the effects of human sin and treachery and God-hating has been erased. All that comes with the sea, the chaos, the turmoil, the pain, the fear, is gone. It's been wiped away. He gives us a glimpse, this new heaven and this new earth will be kind of like what we see here but so much better because it'll be perfect and we'll actually be with, in unison and unified with God. And so who? Who is God coming to dwell with? In verses two and three, he says, and then I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as, as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So who is God coming to dwell with? Because as he's coming to dwell with the new Jerusalem, his bride. He's coming to dwell with his people. And it's important to realize the new Jerusalem is, is not an allusion to the capital city of Israel, uh, but it's actually the spiritual city of God. It's filled with the people of God coming from heaven to this new earth. And we're not going to spend tons of time today looking at the new Jerusalem because next week, Josh is going to spend the whole time uh, walking through the next text with us that focuses specifically on the new Jerusalem and and what it actually looks like. Uh, But today I want to focus on the imagery that comes with with the new Jerusalem. 
where John uses the imagery of a bride adorned for her wedding day. And what's interesting to realize, to think through, is that, that a bride, a bride adorned for her wedding day, very rarely, if ever, is the bride the one that actually adorns. The bride is the one that actually beautifies herself for her wedding day. It was definitely not that case in ancient Israel in the time of this writing where they would spend forever getting their bride ready and beautifying her and cleansing her for this ceremony. Yet in much the same way today, very rarely is the bride actually the one that's, that's kind of beautifying herself uh, for, for her wedding. I think of my wife, Anna, on our wedding day, uh, and she was gorgeous, by the way. Uh, and she, she honestly didn't have to do too much besides uh, sit there and get ready. Somebody came and did her nails for her. Somebody came and did her makeup for her and did the last touch-ups. Somebody came and did her hair and made it gorgeous. Someone even helped her get into her dress. You see, as the bride, you're the one that comes and someone else comes to adorn you. Someone else comes to help beautify you. And the beauty of this image is that we know that as us, as, as the bride, us as the people of God, we know that it was ultimately Jesus that came and adorned us. It was Jesus that came and beautified us. We can ultimately see through his cross, through the spilling of his blood, through the resurrection, that this was all part of the process of making us beautiful, of making us right, of making us so that we can actually stand before the groom, stand before Jesus unashamed, knowing that we are beautiful and complete before him. In Ephesians 5, it says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, Jesus did all that so that we could be the beautiful bride for this wedding day. And this imagery gives us a picture that the wedding is about to begin. And when that wedding begins, from this time forward, the bride and the groom will be one, will be unified. Yet the beauty is, when you go to most weddings that we experience, you know, there's that line, till death do us part. Yet the beauty of this wedding is no longer where there'll be death. And so we are unified with God forever. We are his bride forever. There is no death. There is no end to being joined with God. And then he goes on and says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The word dwell holds special significance and it's something that we should kind of direct our eyes to because the word John uses actually conjures up the idea of, of the dwelling in the Old Testament, the Old Testament tabernacle. The holy of holies where God himself dwelt among his people. Or fast forward to them being in the promised land, them being in Jerusalem and having a physical temple, more than just a tent. And even in there, they had the holy of holies, the place where God dwelled. Yet in both of these instances, 
God and his people didn't actually live under one roof. It was one day a year that the high priest could, could spread that huge, huge sheet and walk behind to be in the presence of God. But other than that, they weren't actually dwelling together. Yet we know in John's gospel, in, in John 1, it says that Jesus, who was the word, became flesh and dwelt among us. Again, that word dwelt, literally meaning he pitched his tent among us. And we gaze upon his glory. You see, the first advent is saying that Jesus actually came and lived among his people, began to dwell with his people. And then we see at the end of days when Jesus and God once again come and dwell, but not for a season, not for 33 years, but forever. We, his bride, he, the groom. N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, this is what John's gospel says about Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt, pitched his tent, tabernacled in our midst, and we gaze upon his glory. What God did in Jesus, coming to an unknown world and an unwelcoming people, he's doing on a cosmic scale. He's coming to live forever in our midst, a healing, comforting, celebrating presence. And the idea of incarnation, so long a key topic in our thinking about God's future for the world, is revealed as the key topic in our thinking about God's future for the world. Heaven and earth were joined together in Jesus. Heaven and earth will one day be joined fully and forever. And so lastly, as we see this dwelling of God, the question is, okay, what's, what's the result? What's the outcome of God coming to this new heaven and this new earth and dwelling with his people? <clears throat> and that's in verse four. He says, you will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. What's he saying? He's saying there's going to be no more death, no more pain, no more tears. Which really means that the bodies that we know it will actually be, be changed. Because currently our bodies die. As Jeremy shared last week, you know, death is 100% for sure. Like no matter what we do, we are going to die. And I don't know at what point in our life it's all of a sudden we start dying, but I feel like I'm getting to that point, and I'm only 27, where it's like, you go to bed, wake up, and you're like, oh my gosh, I literally just fell asleep and somehow like I'm hurting. Like we realize the pain and that, that death is, is imminent. Our bodies hurt. We cry. See, if death is gone, if pain is gone, if tears are gone, then our bodies, we know it, are gone. We are transformed. We are made into something glorious. Which speaks directly into what Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 20 through 21, where he says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You see, there's, there's coming a day when it's truly the reversal of the curse. There's the reversal of of Genesis 3. And that's the beauty ultimately of the meta-narrative of Scripture is that we start in Genesis 1 and 2 in a garden. And then 21 and 22, as we get there, we'll see we end in a garden. 
Like he's completely reversed the pain and the evil and the wickedness that came in Genesis 3, the fall. No longer does that weigh us down. We finally are free to live as Christ has made us to live in perfect unison with God. Finally, once again, we are back in the Garden of Eden with our maker, with our creator. See, what joy do we have to look forward to? That that's ultimately the trajectory. That's ultimately the end outcome for us as we are back in the garden with God as we are meant to be. Second, we're going to look at the, the newness of God, which we already start to get glimpses of in verses 3 and 4 as God comes and he says, I'm going to remove all of these things, all the things that cause heartache and pain in your life will be no more. You see, this is the last time in Revelation, the last time in Scripture that God utters an announcement to us, the words of God. And we're going to read verses um, 5, or just verse 5 right here. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, we said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The last announcement that God makes I am making all things new. And notice that God calls attention to the fact that it's not, I will make all things new, as in a future tense, but he's saying, right here, right now, I am making all things new. Tomorrow, I'm making all things new. A week from now, a year from now, 10 years from now, until I see you face to face, I am making things new. And then it's almost as if John is so blown away by that statement that he stops writing. And God's like, no, write this down. This is trustworthy and true. This is a truth that we can cling to, that we can hold to. When days are hard, when we're frustrated, and we just want to throw in the towel, realize that God is making all things new. And that's why I love how as we as a church get to rally around things like Restore Corvallis, where we get to go into the city of Corvallis and be part of that restoration process, of that part of making things new. Because we know that when he says new, he's talking about a renewal. Not only is he renewing us, but he's renewing the very space around us. And I think we as Christians, part of our job is, is to be part of that renewing process, not only in our own lives or the lives of those around us, but the world around us. You see, we can have assurance that no matter the evil or the suffering or the futility that we see or that we experience, newness is coming. And newness will come to all things. And then he goes on and he, he makes this statement. I'm in verse 6 where he says, it is done. And it's an interesting play on words here because if, you, if you're familiar uh, with the story of the cross, if you're familiar with Jesus, uh, we know that Jesus is, is on the cross. Um, and, and one of his last words is he says, it is finished. It is finished. What's really saying, he's saying, it's paid for. It's finished. I've bought it. I've finished so that you guys will not be finished so that you guys can have life. And then we get to Revelation 21 where he doesn't say it's finished, but he says it's done. All things are new. See, I make all things new. 
the hope that we see in Jesus making that statement on the cross is the same hope that we have at the end because we know when God says it is done, he means it is done. See, there's hope in this. Jesus is the one that said, in this world you may have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And he's continuing to overcome the world every single day. And Jesus goes, or he goes on here to, uh, to make a statement about who he is, um, and then kind of follows it with, with three promises. Um, he says, it is done. And then he says, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So he begins by saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. You cannot start without me, and you cannot end without me. And then he aligns three promises to this statement. He, he speaks to those who are thirsty, to those who conquer, and ultimately to those who, who oppose him. And so first, looking at those who are thirsty, uh, he says in verse 6, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Soak in that verse, that he will give to those that are thirsty the water of life without, without payment. He will give you the living water free of charge. You know, Jesus said, come to me, all who are thirsty, and I will give you the water of life. We can go and think through the woman at the well that Jesus speaks to and says directly this thing. See, there's so much hope because God is the beginning and the end. And he wants you to know that in between beginning and end, there's these chances for you to have water, to have life. And the beauty and what separates God from all other religions is that God says, it's free. It's free. To all those who are thirsty, all we have to do is, is thirst is to be thirsty for sustenance, for water. God says, I, I will give it to you without charge. And then he goes on to speak to those who conquer. He says, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son, or he will be my daughter. God is, is talking directly to us, directly to his followers, his believers. He's saying, though Christ through the cross has won the battle, we so often still feel like we are at war with the world. We're at war with evil. And so he's speaking to those and saying, hey, those of you that are, are fighting in this world of sin and oppression, that daily wake up, put that armor of God on and say, hey, I'm going out to battle those that strive to conquer, those that strive to, to live for God, even in the midst of sin and oppression. He's saying there's hope for you. There is that desire to stay strong in the midst of oppression and suffering. 
because the one who conquers will have this heritage. What is this heritage? That I will be his God and he will be my son. He will be my daughter. Ultimately, those that conquer will be heirs, heirs of God. Literally, just let that soak in. The creator of the universe wants you to be his heir, wants you to be his son and daughter. And to be an heir means that everything that they have is now yours. You are invited into the family of God, not just as a servant, not just as a household help, but as the very sons and daughters of the Most High God. How unbelievable is that that we are his heirs. See, whereas God is the, the one and only son, we are adopted sons and daughters. Where God inherits all things we, or as Jesus inherits all things, we as co-heirs get to inherit these things as well. Cling to that truth. And I think that's why this promise goes so hand in hand with those that are our conquerors. Because there's going to come days where it's really hard. There's going to come days where we're not excited to get up. We're not excited to get out of bed. We face suffering and persecution. But this promise is here to say, look at what is coming. Look at what you receive today. Look at what you will receive tomorrow and at the end of the ages. And it's in those moments you can say, it's, it's worth it. I would face whatever came at me to know that I'm a son of God and that I receive the blessings they come with that. Remember, God makes the statement, I am the Alpha and the Omega. You see, God is the end for those thirsty for him. For those who thirst for him, he is forever connected as the source of life. He daily gives you the sustenance that you need to breathe, the sustenance you need to stay strong. Yet, God is also the end for those not thirsty for him. In the sense that when we finally meet God, if we're not thirsty for him, we meet him as, as, as judge. God is the never-ending omega for every man. He is either the fountain of eternal life or he's exactly what verse 8 shows us. To those who oppose him, God ends with a statement, this long catalog of those who will not be part of God's kingdom. To those who do not actually thirst for God. In verse 8, he says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, this is the second death. So this is for the cowardly. Those that fear danger and flee from the consequences of actually a confessing faith in Jesus. Or those that are, that are unbelievers just simply say, hey, Jesus isn't who he says he is. God, it's a myth, whatever. Detestable people. People who have polluted this world that have pursued lifestyles diametrically opposed to the gospel, diametrically opposed to scripture to the murders, to the sexually immoral people, to sorcerers, idolaters, those that 
put other things above God and say, that's my God, and to liars. It says those who oppose him will get a second death. And so what, what is the second death? Uh, in Revelation 20, it gives a very clear picture uh, of what that reality is. In Revelation 28 through 12, it says this, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So what is this second death? It's separation from God into the lake of fire. It's complete removal from this new heaven and this new earth. You're not a bride. You're completely removed from God. See, God's, God's last statement to us of I've made all things new. I am the alpha and the omega. And the joy that comes with that and yet the heartache that comes with that, he wants you to feel that, to feel that there is joy, but there's also a call to reflect and to look. Okay, who am I? Who am I in this story? Am I thirsty? Am I a conqueror? Or do I fit this catalog of people that are ultimately opposed to God, that don't thirst? see, God is coming to dwell and to make all things new. And I ultimately believe this is the greatest news we can share. This is the beauty of this Christmas season. This is the beauty of Advent, that God is coming. He's coming to dwell with us and to make all things new. And so if you're sitting in this room, you kind of fall into one of two categories. You're either one that... You, you, you believe the story. You believe Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus came and lived a life that, that we couldn't, died a death that we deserved, ultimately dying a death on the cross. But we know that death could not be victorious over him. But then three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And through this whole process, we have been beautified. We have been glorified. That God has made us the bride that can be adorned to be united with Christ once again at the end. You're the believer. Or you're in the other category of, hey, this is just a Christmas story. You know, Jesus, hey, he was a good teacher, or I don't even know if he was real. Um, you kind of fall in the category of the unbeliever. Like, who, who, who is Jesus? He's, he's decent, but he's, he's nothing in my life. So for the believer... I hope that this calls us to truly rejoice, to be excited and awestruck at the words of God, to truly cling to what God has said to us this morning. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. Like that's a truth that we can cling to, that God of the universe is coming to be with each and every one of us. 
And not only that, but is he making all things new? He's restoring us. These are things that we can cling to in the midst of pain and heartache. We are also called to live as sons and daughters of the most high God. What would your life look like? Would it, how different would it be if you really soaked in that reality that God's my father? And because God's my father, all that God has is mine. Would I be more bold? Would I be more generous? Would I be more intentional? And lastly, I think this calls us as believers to live with reckless abandonment for today because we know what tomorrow brings. We know what's coming. And so because we know what is present in the ends, we can live reckless lives of love and sacrificialness today because I know the end. Because I know the end. Piper says, the person who knows that his destiny is glorious and certain will be free to live the most radical life of love and sacrifice here on earth. Uh, imagine this picture with me. You're on a plane, um, and there's a number of you guys on that plane, and for some reason the door's open and somebody falls out. If none of you have, I know, crazy story, right? If none of you have a parachute and that person falls out without one, you're not going to go dive after that person because, I mean, two deaths are not better than one. None of us that I know of in this room are superheroes, so it's not like you can grab that person and just kind of float down to earth. None of you are going to jump out of that plane if you don't have a parachute. Yet, if that person falls out without a parachute and you have one, you might actually jump out of that plane and plummet towards the ground trying to grab them to pull your chute to get you safely to the ground. You see, it's the hope of safety in the end that ultimately allows you to radically and sacrificially jump out of that plane to pursue that person falling. And this is the same for us today. God probably isn't calling you to jump out of a plane, but what is he calling you to kind of jump out into to live sacrificially, to sacrificially dive into? You see, we can be radical human beings for the gospel today because we know the end result. We know that Jesus is coming, that God is coming. Take advantage of the time we have here. We get to call people's attention to the fact that they ought to be thirsty for more. They ought to be thirsty for Jesus. Live recklessly abandoned lives today because we know what tomorrow brings. And there are those of you potentially here today that, like I said, this is just a story. Like Christmas is great, but I really like it for the presents and not necessarily what this big day represents. The nativity, whatever, it's not a big deal to me. And I truly believe that today's text is a wake-up call. Is a wake-up call to you that God is coming. For some of us, this is glorious news. And for others, this is, this is scary news. He's coming to dwell with his people, but only his people. You see, if you are opposed to God, if you're opposed to Jesus, he makes it clear that the omega for you, the end for you, is the second death in this lake of fire, not getting to experience all that God has for you. 
not getting to be the bride. But the beauty is if, if you're in this room and, and you fit into that category, there's hope for you. There is hope for you. It is not too late. Aren't you tired of, of tears and death around you and pain and heartache? I mean, you turn on the news and it's just devastating. It's just sad. Even in the midst of a Christmas season, we see a lot of good things happening, but pain still comes. Tears still come. Aren't you thirsty for more, more of life? And that's where God says to the thirsty, I will give the spring of water of life without payment. Like in Revelation 21, the very end of the Bible, God still makes that statement. To those that are thirsty, I will give life without payment. And so if you're in this room, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty for more of life? Because God is that answer. You might have been pursuing it in a whole bunch of different ways. But I can guarantee you those ways fall up short. Or you're still thirsty. You're still wanting more after you get your fill. Yet God is the water of life that never runs dry, that continues to fill your cup. Thirst for God, and he will give you the spring of life. He will give you Jesus, and you don't know anything. All you have to be is thirsty. See, this is the beauty of the gospel. This is the beauty of, of, of what we as Christians get to rejoice in in this season, is that God is coming to dwell and to make all things new. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end by reading um, a poem that I think beautifully sums up ultimately the ends of Scripture and the beauty of the gospel, and it's called All Things New. We look for a new world, all beautiful and bright. We look for a new world where never comes a night. We long for a new world where there's no pain or tears. We long for a new world where no one dies or fears. We'll go to the city that's built by Christ the King. We'll kneel down before him while God's good angels sing. We'll live for the city and never shall we leave. This the Lamb has promised to all who will believe. Lord God, uh, we, we praise you uh, for, for Advent, uh, for you sending your son Jesus to this earth, Lord. Uh, for our sake. Um, and Lord, we praise you ultimately for Revelation 21 and 22 as we get to see this second advent, that you come again, Lord, um, and that you are coming to dwell with your people. No longer do we have to go to the holies of holies to experience you, but we need to experience you all around us, God, because you dwell with us, your people. And God, we praise you that you are making all things new, that you are restoring this earth and you're restoring us uh, into your glory, God. We praise you that we are the bride adorned by your son for your son. In your name, amen. Uh, we're going to enter into a time of worship. Um, and during these next few songs, uh, the tables are open down in the front and two in the back. Um, and if you are a follower of Jesus, this meal is for you. I mean, ultimately, this, this meal is, is a celebration for this exact thing, that we get to celebrate what Jesus has done. This meal is the beauty of, of Jesus' 
adorning us as his bride for himself. So may we come to the table as excited and rejoicing for what God has done for us, but at the same time, I think also reflecting um, on what God is maybe calling us into or where we fall short in that. May we, may we join together in song and join together as, as we feast on the beauty of God.